Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. July the 17th, 2011, at uh, just after 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope you're doing very well. Just a little introduction. I uh, wanted to share the newest on uh, toddler UPB statistics, my daughter. Uh, we have a, a thing with her, which I guess many parents do, um, where she doesn't listen. Like her strategy for not doing what she doesn't want to do is to not listen. I'm not going to say where she might have gotten that from. Uh, I'm certainly pointing. If you see this in the video, you will be seeing the pointing. But there's just no way I'm going to go on audio record as having saying where she might get this from. But uh, yeah, so her strategy is to not listen. And so what we have decided to do is simply to point out that she's not listening and to remind her that she's free to disagree. But she does have to actually acknowledge that we've spoken as parents. Anyway, so this has been going, going on for a couple of weeks now where... You know, she'll uh, will say it's time to wash your hair or it's time for bath or whatever things that she may not want to do. She just plans to listen. We say, Isabella is not listening. <laughs> Isabella is not listening. That's the um, that's the um, the statement that we make, which you know is is reasonable and accurate. Anyway, so yesterday I was um, uh, she was uh, in the bath with uh, uh, Christina was giving her a bath and I was just passing by in the hallway and Isabella was talking to me, calling out to me. And I had the iPod, I was checking email or some geeky stuff like that. Because, you know, it's important to keep your work going at all times. And um, anyway, so I turned into the bathroom and I was sort of standing by the sink and I was just finishing checking my email. And uh, Isabella continued to be talking to me. Uh, but then she paused and she looked at mommy and she looked at, at daddy and she said, Dada, he's not listening. And boy, you just, you can't beat that. And I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. Here we tell you that you really should listen to us. And here I am being very rude, uh, checking my email when you're talking to me. I'm so sorry. How rude of me. I do apologize. And thank you for pointing it out. And we mentioned that a few times. But I just thought that because it's not just the words that she says. I mean, it's great that she picks up the moral rule and reflects it back or the politeness rule or whatever. But what I just loved about it was it was, it was the actual tone reproduction. <laughs> Dada is not listening the same way that we say it to her. I just thought that was fantastic. So I just wanted to keep you updated on the uh, the Izibu uh, situation. But um, I know we've got a whole bunch of callers stacked up, so uh, I won't uh, um, I won't lengthen out this introduction. I'll maybe do a video later. But thanks, everybody. This is the Sunday call-in show. Uh, last point. Also, if you wanted to join uh, myself and my family and Mark Edge of Free Talk Live and... Um, uh, for a cruise to the Bahamas, we're going to be going in November. You can go to fdrurl.com forward slash cruise to sign up. It's like 700 bones, and it should be just a great, great time, and I hope that you'll be able to join us. So that's my little pitch. Not to forget Liberty Fest New York, uh, September the 10th, lfnyc.com. You can go to libertopia.org to check out. I'll be um, doing a lot of speaking at Libertopia uh, on the 23rd, 24th of October in San Diego, California. And uh, I also probably will be speaking in Florida. I'll post a little bit about that later. And I hope that you're having a wonderful week. I'll talk to you soon. And so now we turn it over to the listeners. Thank you for your patience. Hello. Hello. Yeah. How's it going? Yeah. Uh, uh, good. Are you talking to me? Uh, are you talking to me? Yes, Robert De Niro. Please continue. <laughs> okay. Are we ready? Yes, indeed. Okay. If you were to put all the population of this country into a, a triangle, and you measure the height of that triangle as either being intelligence, enlightenment, knowing, whatever you want to classify it as. Only half of that population, the top half, that's only 25% of the population. 75% is below the halfway mark. Now, in history, there has never been a king, a queen, 
or a tyrannical government that has ever left office because the top 25% asked them nicely to. They always had to be dismissed violently by the bottom half of the triangle, the 75%. Now, I've been thinking, it doesn't really matter to me what people want to do with their lives. I think their right to swing their fist ends at the end of my nose. And if somebody wants to do drugs all day, let them do it. If we want to live the way we want to live, is it possible to either buy a small country? I'm willing to put $100,000 into this. But the problem is if we found a million out of 300 million who were all willing to live a free life, that's $100 billion that we have access to. We can buy a small country for that. But the problem is, wouldn't we then have the first of our tasks? Wouldn't it have to be a very strong military? Because if we were prosperous, wouldn't we then be open for attack from all the other tyrannical governments? And if we were to choose a state, I don't care what state, but if all the top 25% of the population all wanted to move there, I mean, I'd love Texas to succeed from the union. I think we would have a huge deluge of people asking for Texas citizenship. Um, if we were to do that, wouldn't we then be open to invasion from all the other states? It doesn't appear as though there really is a solution for this. I'd like to hear your comments. Great question. So uh, your basic argument is that we do need to have some sort of uh, either secession from existing state of societies or some sort of violent revolution in order to overthrow uh, the tyrannies that beset us, so to speak. And uh, the unfortunate thing is, of course, let's say that we all buy some island and set up a stateless society. We'd need a very strong defense agency because other states may want to come in and pillage, of course, the increasing wealth. Plus, also, other states would have the problem of not liking the example of how successful and functional a free society could be because it would put lie, put the lie to their own uh, uh, predations. Is that is that a good summation of your exactly. argument? Yeah, but well, look, I mean, in, in the past, sorry, though, they've never given up the fight. Without yeah, they're not going to. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, they're they're not going to give up. Uh, the the they're not going to give up power and control uh, in in a voluntary way. There's no question of that. I completely agree with you for sure. Well, um, so what's the solution? You know? Well, the solution is, is a third way, right? Uh, rather than trying to escape the society and rather than trying to use violence to overthrow rulers, uh, there is a third way that I have identified. Uh, I don't know if I'm the first to identify it. It was certainly new to me. But the third way is through um, a peaceful parenting, uh, first and foremost. Uh, we have to recognize that uh, a multi-thousand-year institution like the state is not going to go away in a small slice of time. That's, that's not going to happen. And, and to recognize that is really, really important because otherwise we are tempted to do useless short-term fixes like uh, political action, political arguments, uh, and that sort of stuff. And so I think it's really important to recognize that we are looking at getting away, uh, getting rid of an institution that is older, uh, in a sense, than slavery, although in some ways synonymous with it. And those kinds of revolutions take at least a century. Now, usually closer to a century and a half, right? So the first women who began to agitate for the legal right to divorce began doing so in the early 19th century. Uh, even in Canada, up until quite recently, divorce required a parliamentary decree for a woman, no matter how badly she treated uh, she was by her husband, to 
to escape from her marriage. And it wasn't until the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and in some places even into the 21st century that women gained the legal right of divorce. And uh, so that was about 150 years, rights of women. You could look at Mary Shelley, that's the author of Frankenstein. She wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women in the early 19th century, I think it was. And it wasn't until the mid-20th century that women began to really agitate for and gain political rights and the rights of property and the rights of contract and the rights of independence. And even then, it took another generation or so for the right of divorce to come about. So, And slavery, I mean, you could look at just about anything, uh, even such a thing as child abuse. I mean, child abuse was unrecognized as a phenomenon uh, as uh, until really the early to mid-20th century. And still now we have a massive amount of 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 the space and time and consciousness yeah, uh, rating to to cross over early. in order to deal with the problem uh, of child abuse effectively. So these and and these are all bigger than the state is bigger than these in a sense. So it's it's a long term like problem. A, Sorry, go ahead. Like this is a, an evolution thing. Um, if you were to take a pack of dogs and throw a bone amongst the dogs, the dogs wouldn't say, "Oh, well, I had the bone yesterday. Uh, I think it's your turn today." They wouldn't intellectually discuss who's next in line to have the, do- the bone. They would all fight to the death to get the bone. So if we did evolve from survival of the fittest, which I think... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think you may be uh, insulting dogs a little bit. Uh, dogs are, I think, <laughs> no, the dogs are well known to share yeah, food uh, with the sick. Of course, mama dogs will go and get food and bring them back to their children. I mean, uh, or to their to their pups. Oh. Uh, birds do it. Uh, bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. So uh, remember, the animal yeah. kingdom has a lot of altruism in it. <laughs> well, animals never kill for fun, uh, like we do. It's it's quite yeah. A- ants and horrible. human beings are the only species that wage war on yeah. each other, which is great company to be in. Yeah, yeah. Now, but the trouble is, though, is I want it in my lifetime. I mean, I understand, but I'm impatient. You know, I see the wisdom of what we're discussing, and I want to see it now because the bottom 75% would love it too. But you have to see, but what I'm asking you to do is to break from the paradigm of wanting power over others. What you fundamentally want is power over those who have power over us. And it's as hard for us to give up our, no, because you want to make them go away. You want them to make them stop what they're doing, or you want to escape them and get out of their clutches. You want to, and then you're afraid of them coming after you with weapons and so on. So, but we have to give up the idea, even that we have power over those who have power over us. That's the great addiction and lure of political action. If I vote someone in who agrees with me, the government should be smaller. I'm going to find some way to limit the power of the state, that, the power that the state has over me. Look, we have to give up those illusions. They don't work. Uh, they, we, we, we've been trying them for, I mean, gosh, if you look back to uh, even Aristotle's work uh, 2,400 years ago, uh, looking at to trying to control the power of the state, uh, if philosophers, intellectuals, economists, and all other types of uh, um, uh, theoreticians have tried to find ways to limit the size and power of the state since the state was created. I'm sure the state was created the next day. People are like, okay, how do we limit this? And so this has been an experiment that's been going on for thousands of years. And I think that it's just time for us to humbly accept that the evidence is in, that the evidence is in, that there is no way. And because if we say that we can find some way to minimize, control, manage, decline, or or crush the power of the state through some sort of political form or some sort of fleeing – then what we're saying is that we are smarter than the combined genius of 2,500 years 
of really, really brilliant men and women who tried to control the power, that we are smarter than the entire founding fathers put together, that we're smarter than the entire legion of Greek and Roman philosophers, that we're smarter than the entire legion of the Enlightenment philosophers. I don't have the intellectual stones to swing that hard. I just, I can't look back and say, well, I can figure out, or Ron Paul, or someone's going to figure out a way to limit the power of the state by using the state, despite the fact that 2,500 years of stone geniuses have tried it and failed. I just, I can't do it. I mean, I'm going to accept the facts that are in there. So if we do peaceful parenting, we will grow people who, sorry, if we do peaceful parenting, we will raise children who are not frightened of authority and who are benevolent and who are peaceful and and nonviolent and non-aggressive in that in the way that is destructive and non-criminal. So that begins to undermine the entire need for the state. The second thing that we need to do is as philosophers and thinkers and libertarians and objectivists and anarchists and rationalists, we really, really need to ostracize people who support the use of violence against us. Ostracism is the most powerful force in human society that I mean, it's, it's in, in some ways, it's second only to force uh, at, a, at a mere personal level. But politically, it is superior to the power of force because the power of force is only supported politically by people who believe that it is moral and necessary. In other words, that it is not force. And so we need to ostracize the people because the entire future of free society, at least as I've argued, and I'm certainly not the only one to argue this, is based upon the power of ostracism. And so if we believe, or I'm going to speak for you, I believe that a future society can be very effectively run on the power of ostracism. And so I deploy that power to, to see if it works. I mean, if you, uh, if you think you have a surefire cure for a particular illness and you have that illness, then take that illness. If you think that you have a surefire way to lose weight and you're overweight, try that way to lose weight. And so I've tried to use the power of ostracism within my own life and I have found it to be phenomenally powerful. And so ostracism plus peaceful parenting is the way to go. It has not been tried before. So at least if it doesn't work, it won't be the same mistake and we'll have ticked, and we'll have crossed something else off the list. But I think it has every conceivable chance of working. And frankly, I can't see any other way that it can work. And that is something you can do without having $100,000 and the uh, capacity to build a society and a military in some new country. You can do that in your life. You can do that today. You can pick up the phone. You can talk to people about the violence of the state, the evils of the drug war, the evils of public schools, the evils of welfare, the evils of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the slow, dismal end of empire collapse of a society based on blood. You can do all of that and you don't need anything else other than knowledge and the passion to speak openly and clearly and make your moral judgments real in your relationships, that's all you need. And so that's an opportunity that's available to everyone. And the fact that people are so hesitant to use it only confirms how powerful ostracism really is. So those are my arguments. And I don't think we need another country. I don't think we need some uh, magic knight in shining armor to ride into the government and lay waste to its extremities of power. All we need is the firmness to act on our convictions that once we have identified evil, i.e. the initiation of force, and in particular, its concentration in the hands of the state. Once we have identified evil, and we have identified what allows that evil to continue, which is the support and praise of citizens, then we can, instead of attacking the state, we attack the real source of the state. The real source of the state, the real source of the power of the state, is not its guns, it is not its taxation, it is not its military. It is the belief that it is moral and necessary to have a state. That is the only source of its power. And we go to the root of the tree of evil. We do not trim its branches. We go to the root, which is the belief in those around us that the support is that the state is moral and necessary. And that's what we do to free ourselves from this. And I don't see any other way. End of my speech. Please uh, tell me if I'm wrong and, and where. Well, I just don't think the Jews in 1940 uh, 
even if they did ostracize the uh, the state, would have done them any good. I mean, they would have been butchered no matter what they did. I, you, I I'm sorry, I'm not sure where you're calling from, but do you feel that you're in a, uh, a situation, uh, say, two years prior or one year prior to concentration camps and, and uh, Zyklon B chambers? No, what I feel we're very close to is a total economic collapse of this country, which is going to... And sorry, do you mean, sorry, just interrupt again, are you calling from the U.S.? Yeah. Okay, sorry, go ahead. I am. Yeah. Um, I believe there's going to be uh, riotous behavior because the state is trying some futile act to control us by making us all subservient to the state and needing the state for our own survival. Um, the only thing that I can do to help protect my family is to find some way of isolating or immuning myself from the actions of the state. I just want to be left alone. I mean, I think everybody is entitled to their version of freedom as long as it doesn't take away the decisions and freedoms from others. Like I said, your right to swing your fist ends at the end of my nose. You can swing your fist all day, all day long if that's makes you happy. But when it starts to affect my freedom, um, then your right to do what you're doing uh, slowly diminishes. Right now, the state decides what tax we pay, who we have to pay, how much. They're never going to give up their uh, income, and they don't produce anything. As you said before, the only income that the state has is from us. Now, I just want to be left alone. Uh, I feel like I have a, a right to be left alone. As long as I don't interfere with others, there should be no no need to knock on my door. And I'm sure the Jews, uh, before the Second World War really took effect, uh, felt exactly the same. But the state still went into their homes, took their positions, raped their possessions, raped their women, and threw them into concentration camps. So I don't believe, look, uh, first of all, I, I, I don't accept that we are in pre-Nazi Germany times, even in the U.S. Yeah, there's going to be economic okay. hardships. There were economic hardships in, uh, uh, in South America all throughout the 1990s. And we look at what happened to the currency in Argentina. And they did not descend into minority crushing uh, death camps and, and uh, concentration camps and so on. And you can look all over the world. Th those days, those days are largely gone. And those days are largely gone as a result of, of improvements in parenting. In, in other words, um, uh, I mean, just to give a small anecdote that I've, I've mentioned before, uh, the, the, the child-raising practices in 19th and early 20th century Germany were un indescribably brutal. I can't imagine a single parent uh, of the day that would not be almost immediately arrested for child abuse if they were to try and do what they did to children. I mean, massive beatings and the, these, these sort of binding up of infants in, in, in cloths that were riddled with lice and, and so on, right? And this is one of the reasons why when Hitler referred to Jews as lice, it had a very powerful and terrifying impact upon the German unconscious because they'd all been gnawed at by lice as a result of just ridiculously destructive parenting habits. That kind of, kind of parenting is very rare. In the world now, there has been a huge improvement in the 20th century. The, the rights of children and the rights of women often go hand in hand. And as the rights of women have improved, the quality of parenting uh, has improved. And I think there's some limitation to that, which we don't have to get into here. But um, the, 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 the cause 
of the, the, the Nazism was not economic collapse. There's been tons of economic collapses throughout the world, throughout history. Almost every currency within a generation or two goes through some sort of collapse. And remember, America's currency is only 40 years old, right? America's currency is only 40 years old because it's really, it really can only be counted as the currency that we have now or that you have now after Nixon took the, um, the fiat currency or made it into fiat currency by taking the U.S. off the gold standard in 1971, so it's only 40 years. It's right on schedule for a collapse, but it is not economic collapse that causes the kind of genocidal murderousness that you saw uh, in um, in Germany or that you saw, of course, in China or that you saw in Russia under communism or that you're currently seeing in North Korea. Uh, there is this To create people who are willing to murder by the millions, you have to brutalize them as children to the point where they have developed almost no empathy, uh, to the point where they are uh, so insane with, with agony and power lust and hatred of anybody who has any kind of difference. That doesn't come about because people lose money. You don't fundamentally alter somebody's personality structure because their 401k account goes down by half or three quarters or even 100%. You have to breed people to be those kinds of monsters. And I think that the breeding pens for those kinds of monsters have largely, thank heavens, been washed away into the bloody sewers of history. So my argument would be that an economic collapse in America uh, might be uh, the best thing uh, rather than a presage to uh, some sort of Nazi horror uh, situation. Uh, do you believe the uh, Bilderberg Group are uh, planning uh, a strategy against the world? I, I really don't know enough about it. Uh, I certainly would not be shocked if those uh, who had enormous amounts of power uh, had some sort of plan to maintain and extend that power. I have no doubt about that. But I don't know enough about the details, and I don't really care about the Bilderberg Group or the Trilateral Commission or the Bohemian Grove or any of those things, because those are all symptoms. Those are all symptoms. Those people don't have any power unless the majority of people believe the state is moral and necessary, and it is that. It's the belief of my fellow slaves that I wish to challenge, not the power that results from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite as optimistic as you. I really feel that we're heading for something of uh, unprecedented disaster. So I guess we'll just well. In which case, I would understand that it's it's you would consider it too late, right, to do anything philosophically. Um, you know, like yes. if you're three days away from having a heart attack, there's no point switching yes. from no, all, uh, burgers all I to salads. Now right? is just buy a farm and try and keep out of the way and see what happens. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I just make one last little little speech, and then we'll move on to the next caller. And I appreciate your call, I really do. And look, please don't think that what I'm saying is right. This is all arguments. Oh, this is not stuff that you can prove <laughs> empirically. So no, these, I you know. I could be entirely full of crap. But I will say this. I will say this, that I do think it's really quite important to remember that if you have the skills to understand all of this stuff, if you have the skills to communicate it, as you obviously do, then I think that you are a doctor in a time of plague. And it is not evil for a doctor to refuse to help others in a time of plague. But I think that there is an obligation on the doctor to help if he can. I don't think it's too late, and I hope that you will continue to put the, put the right ideas out oh, into the absolutely. world. Because if you flee, there's millions of people in your scenario who are going to be left behind uh, in a terrible situation. And, of course, if the right ideas don't come out before the collapse, uh, then there's uh, no chance that they'll come out after oh, the collapse I'm, I'm because the propaganda will have taken over. Right. Oh, good. Okay. I just oh, wanted right. to make that little pitch. Well, I'll stay Let's, and listen. Uh, uh, let somebody else have a go. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Great, great call. I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure that we both hope that you're wrong, um, <laughs> but there's no way to know for sure just well, yet. Well, buy gold and silver Thank just you. in case. Buy gold and silver just in case and get yourself some food in the basement. So thank you very much. Hello? 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 Hi. Roger, Hi. you're up. 
Hi, can you hear me? I sure can. Uh, my name is actually Ryan. I'm not Roger Federer. I wish I was that good at tennis, but uh, <laughs> I just have. What can yeah, we do for you? I just have a few questions. Um, I've been reading. I read. Uh, um, reading Practical Anarchy, and uh, it just seems like I've been given, you know, some kind of truth. And I I feel like I gotta tell all my friends, right? And uh, I was asking my friend, just trying to explain to him, like, uh, some libertarian beliefs, right? And I was saying, do you think initiation of use of force is always wrong? And he said, he's saying, his objection was that if a country is killing its own people, um, he thinks that, I'll say, Canada should step in to help um, what do you think about that right like, well I think that the answer to that lies in the euphemisms that the man is using because he's not telling the truth about the situation because he's saying stepping in well Canada is not stepping in Canada doesn't actually have any legs Canada is just a concept right so when you're dealing with somebody who's, and I'm not saying that this person is being false or whatever, they're probably just full of propaganda, you know, they're in the matrix, so to speak. But you need to actually uh, break down what is occurring, right? Because Canada is not stepping in uh, to help, like, like someone who's uh, walking down the street, sees some guy beating up his girlfriend and steps in to stop it. That's not what happens. What happens in Canada is that the Canadian government threatens Canadians with imprisonment and quite likely rape, of course, in, in prison, they threaten them with uh, imprisonment and torture in order to extract money from them against their will. And we know it's against their will because there's taxation involved. That's automatically, right? That's automatically the case. And then they then use this money to go and, let's say, do these missions overseas or whatever, right? But uh, the reality is that it is the initiation of force against Canadian citizens that matters. So the, the analogy would be something like this. Uh, let's say that the Canadian missions overseas are good and they do help people uh, stop being killed and so on. I don't believe that's true, but let's just give that, that argument over because we don't want to – you know, we can give every premise but the last one of the argument, if false, will still fall. Well, that's like saying uh, should, should people who are in the mafia who steal from – the general population through extortion and, and threats and all that and and who uh, hold and, and ship sex trade workers against their will and profit from illegal prostitution and run drugs and this and that. Should those people give to the United Way? Should they give to charity? Well, who gives a shit? It, that's not the question. It doesn't matter what happens to the money after it's stolen. It doesn't matter whether it's used for good or for evil. If you go and rob a bank and you give – now, all the money to Doctors Without Borders, you don't get to have that as a defense, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like the you need to look at the core of the where the problems be, being caused. Well, yeah, you need to. You don't just look at the last step and say, "Well, you know, here's a uh, a guy with a pencil thin mustache and a suit suit so shiny you can shave in its reflection, handing over a check to the United Way. Is that good or bad?" Well. I don't know. Where did the money come from? Did he earn it voluntarily and productively? Then, yeah, give to charity. That's a good thing. Did he beat up some grannies and take their retirement money and now he's giving a check to the United Way to launder the money? Well, that's not good, right? <laughs> so, 
Uh, so yeah, it, it you don't just look at the last step and say is this good or bad, right? You have to look at at the whole context, right? Yeah. Uh, I ask you another question. I'm not sure. Um, of course. Just basically, um, how do you? Um, wait, let me think about this. Uh, how do you like go on living in? Um, you live in Canada, right? So, um, I do. how do you go living in a status society when you, you're, you're totally against it? You know, it's kind of a tough thing to know that everything that you've been taught and that you're living in is immoral. How do you go about doing that? I view it as a blessing. I view it as a blessing. I think that to be born in a situation of near universal immorality and to have the ability and the opportunity to resoundingly cry your moral truths to the very heavens and have them bounce off the TCIP stratosphere all over the world is an unbelievable opportunity for great courage great honor, and great virtue. I'm not thankful that there is a state, but I'm thankful, enormously thankful, that I'm able to do what I can do in the situation that we are in. I am a born fighter in many ways. And, you know, in a sense that I, mean, I don't really look for fights, they, they sort of look for me, right? But... I consider it a great honor to be able to add my voice to the chorus of people crying out for peaceful solutions to social problems. Yeah. Um, so I think I think you can look at it as a great opportunity, as a great opportunity. You know, every hero of every movie that we've ever seen has a terrible foe to overcome. And it is through the existence and overcoming of that terrible foe that he becomes who he is, that he becomes the hero. What's Luke Skywalker without the Death Star? Just a weirdly gay with good hair in the middle of a dusty bowl <laughs> farmer, right? Yeah. What is Han Solo without the Empire banning smuggling? Right? He's just going to be a really discontented accountant. <laughs> right? Um, uh, what, is, uh, what is St. George without the dragon? What is uh, who is Frodo without the ring? Well, he's just a fat little hobbit. Yeah. It's uh, so one more thing. Um, I have a question. Like, um, I was talking to my dad about uh, this kind of stuff, and he's from he's from Iran actually, and it, I find it I feel like um, like a spoiled brat just saying complaining about um, the life. Like I'm saying. There's no, there's not freedom here. When he came from a country where it's a heck of a lot worse, you know, and I feel like, yeah, he comes from a country where they have morality police with sticks going up and down the street beating women who are showing a little bit yeah, of forehead, right? It just, it seems like um, I just, I'm whining about when nothing, when people are living in a lot worse uh, governments, you know what I mean? Um, right. 
Well, but the argument for that, right, is to wait, is to say that you have to wait until you get lung cancer to rail against smoking, right? The whole point of railing against smoking is to prevent people from getting lung cancer, right? To, to prevent people from getting sick. You don't have to weigh, you don't have to, um, to weigh 400 pounds before you become passionate about nutrition and exercise, right? You should become passionate about nutrition and exercise in order to avoid becoming 400 pounds, right? So the fact that we live in a more free society than most in the world, which I fully attest to and fully guarantee, means two things. The first thing is it means we better work damn hard to make sure we don't turn into those other kinds of countries. And that takes a particular kind of passion. And the second thing is we have an even greater obligation to advance the cause of human freedom because we can do so with relatively little risk compared to these poor bastards in the Middle East, right, who are facing uh, tear gas, arrests, imprisonment, executions, as has happened in Yemen. Those people are facing some significantly high costs to fight against what they're doing, to fight against uh, tyranny. The costs that we face in the West are relatively low, and therefore I think it's really up to us because we have so many fewer negative consequences to broadcast as loudly and passionately uh, it, 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 so that we can get ideas across to them because I guarantee you that oh, – I know that I've got Middle East listeners uh, because they write to me and give me updates from time to time, and uh, they're hugely appreciative of what I'm doing. They can't do it. They can't do it. But I can, and it's a hell of a lot easier for me to do it than and they have uh, like thousands of times more courage than I will ever need in my life. And uh, because I'm in a safer environment, I can sing uh, the song of truth and reason and freedom all the louder, and I feel that it's my obligation to do so because of my relative security. Yeah. Um, just last thing, and I'll shut up. Uh, what do you think about, um, I'm not sure what the proper term is, but uh, I guess left-wing anarchy? What do I think yeah. of left-wing anarchy? I think it's uh, I think it's more a psychological problem to be solved than a intellectual uh, structure to be analyzed. Like, what do you mean by that? Sorry, that's completely not clear. <laughs> not clear at all. I'm no expert on left-wing anarchy, and if there are left-wing anarchists out there. Then you know, please uh, tell me. You know, we'll do a show together and and tell me where I'm wrong. So, with that caveat in place, uh, I will tell you briefly what I understand about and listen. Uh, what I understand about left wing anarchy and the objections that I have with it. Uh, left wing anarchy is the idea that you should have no state and you should also have no property rights except perhaps in personal items. And this, uh, I, I view to some degree. Uh, the the uh, Venus Project is along this, and syndicalism is, is along these lines as well. So it's the idea that there should be no government, but there should also be no private property. And, uh, of course, the, the famous Proudhon's famous statement that property is theft, uh, which anybody who repeats that as a support of anarchism is clueless about what uh, Proudhon actually meant. What he meant was that state property is theft, or the property that has been stolen from indigenous peoples is theft, not... If you plant a tree and you harvest some apples, that you're stealing apples from space aliens or something. So, uh, but yeah, so the idea is that you do not have a, a, a property and you do not have uh, the state. And I, I just think that that is, um, uh, to me, that is an almost perfect description of childhood, right? And and this is sort of what I feel. And this is just a feeling. I'm not going to say this is a proof, right? This is just my sort of approach to it. So if you just look at the the Venus Project, right? The Zeitgeisters. Uh, what they want is for a there to be a society 
where uh, other people take on the responsibilities of production, i.e. robots and their programmers and all that. And they live in this uh, perfect round city and uh, robots bring them whatever they want to to eat and play with and so on. And they are taken care of. And this, to me, uh, is simply early childhood. I mean, this is just a, an early childhood fantasy, right? So you live in a round area. Uh, well, that's a womb, <laughs> right? And uh, machinery uh, gives you all of your nutrients. Well, that, of course, is your mother's body and the uh, fallopian tube uh, and so on. And you can live a life of carefree abandon and play. And you may have to work or you may not have to work and so on. That is the fantasy and the ideal, really, I think, of, uh, of early childhood. And if you didn't get these things uh, either in the womb or as a, a baby and a toddler, then you're going to have a great yearning for these things. You're going to have a great yearning for some external system or environment that is going to recreate the good childhood that you didn't have. And this is fundamental, I think, to just about every piece of political philosophy in the world, hopefully except for uh, the sort of uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, philosophers. But there's, you know, politics is all about getting unmet needs met through the state. And the unmet needs are childhood needs, are childhood needs, right? So people who grew up with insecure childhoods have a lowered capacity to handle risk. And so they feel that they need external resources available to them if something goes bad in their life. And uh, things go bad in the lives of people who are raised in abusive environments because uh, of a variety of reasons that I've talked about in my bomb in the brain series, fdrurl.com forward slash BIB. And so people who can't hold down jobs really feel the need for unemployment insurance. And people who alienate their children or who don't uh, feel comfortable asking their children for stuff want social security. Right. And uh, people who don't develop supporting networks in their lives, like the friendly societies that used to exist, they need uh, welfare and Medicare and Medicaid and all these kinds of things. And so to me, the government as a whole is simply a primitive and brutal way for people to attempt to get unmet childhood needs met through uh, the power of, of politics. And uh, I think that is, is truly tragic. And this is why I say it is self-knowledge that is going to release us from the fantasy of the state. What, what are people really trying to do when they want political solutions? Is they're trying to avoid the pain of dealing with what was missing in their childhoods by recreating an environment that substitutes the, the state or the robots uh, or whatever for what mommy and daddy should have done. And mommy and daddy didn't do. And that's really tragic. And you need to deal with the pain that mommy and daddy, if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, that they didn't do it. And stop trying to stuff this all up with political stuff. I'll just tell you one. So, so to me, no property and no government is, uh, is the idyllic ideal of childhood. Children really don't understand property in the abstract. Uh, they, they're allowed to have their own little property, right? And in most left anarchist environments, you're allowed to have your own personal property. And so you're allowed to have your own personal property just the same way that a child who's holding a rattle is allowed to continue to hold that rattle, but they don't own the house or the environment or anything like that. So I think it's just – it's primitive uh, – it's a primitive attempt to try to create an environment where your unmet childhood needs are going to be met. And that's sort of my you know, a complete amateur psychological assessment uh, of the situation. And the last thing I'll say is this, is that people – Make a, they have a fundamental misunderstanding about what goes on in in the welfare state. 
uh, and in Social Security. So let's just take retirement, right? People think that retirement is for uh, poor old people, like the retirement benefits of poor old people. That is not true. That is simply not true. Social Security is not for poor old people, Social uh, and welfare is not for poor people, unemployment insurance is not for poor people, because there have been poor people throughout history who've been well, well taken care of in their lives. So I have a neighbor who's, uh, whose mom, uh, is, I guess the grandmother of the kids, his mom lives with them, uh, and she's got no worries about where her next meal is going to come from, and I assume that's because she provides value and love and security to the family, and so they want to care about her. And people who are uh, who who come across hard times, who run across hard times, uh, if they have developed social relationships, if they're liked and treasured and loved within whatever social organization they're part of, a family, a church, a business association, Toastmasters, whatever, right? If you're liked and productive and positive and helpful and generous and wise and good and concerned in your community, then when you come across hard times, your community will help you. So it's not old people who are poor who need Social Security because they would gain the security that they need from their uh, social groups because they had spent a lifetime uh, giving and contributing within their social environment and therefore I genuinely believe most people get that reciprocity and want to help them. No, government programs are for people that people don't like, not for people who are poor, right? This is a really, really important thing to remember. So if, uh, I don't know, like if I was unable to work, I know that there's lots of people who would help me out around the world. I mean, I get these offers all the time and I really appreciate them. And that's really important. So uh, I am relatively well-liked and and what I do has a value to I guess uh, hundreds of thousands of people, which is great. And so, yeah, people would help me out. They do help me out because they donate and, and support what it is that I'm doing. And if there's no social security when I get older, um, you know, my, my daughter, it may, hopefully I'll have saved the money, but if for whatever reason I haven't, I'm sure that my daughter will be happy to to help me out because – She'll want me around, she'll find me a value, she'll love me, I love her, and all that kind of stuff. And so if you look at people, right, so you have the choice to have kids or not, right? So if you don't have kids, then you save about a quarter million dollars per child because that's what it costs to bring a kid to sort of age 18 these days. And so let's say you don't have two kids, well, you get half a million dollars extra in your life. Now, if you invest that, you have more than enough money to retire on. If you don't have kids and don't invest that money but rather spend it, well, then it's too bad, right? If you don't have kids but you're really helpful with other people's families and other people's children and you contribute to your community, then you will have people who will help you when you get old because you've wound yourself in to that social fabric. But if you have kids and you drive them away or alienate them because you've just been a crappy, selfish, brutal parent, well, then, yeah, they're probably not going to want to help you out too much when you get older, right? And, and so that, those are the people who most clamor for Social Security, people who have either not formed or who have destroyed and alienated their supporting social relationships. They're the people who desperately need government assistance. It's people that other people don't like. And so if you've had a couple of kids and for whatever reason you end up poor in your old age, then your kids will help you out because they love you, because they want you to be happy.
in the same way that I lavish money on my daughter and time and attention because I absolutely love her and think she's just the best thing since sliced bread. And uh, it's not a sense of obligation. It's just a genuine pleasure. So it's important to remember that, you know, <laughs> government hires, right, public sector workers are for workers that the private sector doesn't want to hire because they're entitled or lazy or aggressive or weird. A social security retirement benefits are for old people that nobody likes. Yeah. Well. Unemployment insurance is for people who've lost their jobs who nobody likes. I'm not saying everybody dislikes them. It's just that they haven't formed those bonds that are supposed to be there to support you in times yeah, like of trouble. My sister. Or it's for people, yeah, or, or people who've been lazy and uh, spendthrifts, right? They've just blown all the money that they would have otherwise, that otherwise should have saved. And so, but, but even if you've blown all the money, if it, you've at least been nice to people, let's say you've blown all your money on <laughs> buying gifts for your nephews and nieces, then there's no way that your community is going to let you slide into homelessness if you're old. So, so I just want to think that's really, really important when it comes to looking at government programs. They're, they're, they're instituted and demanded. They're instituted for and demanded by people that nobody likes. And so the criteria for government programs is that you are an unlikable person, not that you're poor. And I hope that makes some sort yeah, of sense. It uh, reminds me of my sister, someone no one likes. Um, right. So if you have a sister that no one likes, right? And, and look, I, I have some, I guess, had some friends like this who, who uh, didn't get involved in other people's lives, right? Their friends would have kids. And they'd maybe go over once or twice and bring a sort of toy or whatever. But they never sort of said, oh, you know, I'd be happy to babysit, give you guys a break uh, or whatever, right? I mean, they just – they don't get involved in other people's lives. They don't gain the real pleasures of winding themselves in like two trees or many trees growing together. They don't get take the pleasure of winding themselves up into other people's lives. They're stingy and and alienated and they just want to keep to themselves and they'll do a little bit of stuff. But it's it's kind of selfish overall. Yeah, well, those people feel that they need something, some sort of support when they get older, but that's because they're not particularly likable, not because they're poor. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for answering my questions. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sorry for the big speech. I hope it was... Uh, All right. Let's <laughs> have, uh, have a chance to talk to you about things. Okay. Thank bye. you. Up next is... And I'm probably going to murder your name. Elgin. Oh uh, yeah, so so my my name is Owen. It's a gay ga yeah Owen, Gaelic right, like Gaelic spelling. Um, okay. so yeah, it's nice to talk to you, Stefan. Um, and nice to chat with you too. You hey, you've got a nice voice and you've got a nice microphone. You wouldn't perhaps be in the profession. I'm would you? not. No, I'm not at all actually. But I am from. You could be quite near Athlone actually. From. Mm, oh yeah. really? Yeah. How's, how's the old sod doing um, these not days? Not too great, actually. <laughs> no, indeed. No, indeed. But um, well, for, first off, I, I have no children of my own at the moment. But I, I plan to have children in the future. Um, but maybe you've had this question before. Um, but so the question is: say, say under, if if your child Isabella is under the supervision of somebody else and that other person kind of slaps your child kind of uses force like how will you react to that and how do you think Isabella will react to that well that's a great question um, 
Uh, first of all, I, to the very, very best of my ability, I would not allow her to be in the environment of somebody who hit. Right, so that's um, that's sort of the the first thing, right? I mean, I would really, really double and triple check, and any potential babysitters, I would cross examine, you know, with a flashlight and a rubber rubber gloves to make sure that they understood that there was to be no raised voices and no uh, aggression against my daughter. Uh, she has playmates, of course, that she plays with, and we make sure, of course, that there's no aggression. There have been a few times where she's experienced aggression from other children. Uh, so um, we take her to gymnastics, and uh, she's uh, she, we took her last year, and we're taking again, her again this year. And there was a girl who who pushed her. And, you know, she she jumped up, she turned around and she said, girl, don't push me. I was like, yeah, <laughs> good for you, right? And so uh, I, I said to the girl, please don't push. I said to the mom, can you please make sure she doesn't push my daughter and so on. And then we talked about it afterwards. And she, like most kids, she takes a, a number of times to uh, to to go over things emotionally to, to sort of understand what happened and why. And... So we tried to explain that the girl was younger than Isabella. She was probably just excited that she wasn't being aggressive, that she was probably just wanted to get to where Isabella was and was moving her out of the way, the way you'd move a pillow out of the way or whatever. And I think that was, that would, that was true. That was the case. So on a very few times, she has experienced some sort of aggression. I think most of it inadvertent. Uh, and, and so, yeah, she's very, I can tell you, she is very assertive about her space. Uh, and uh, she is very. She has a very wide. This is true of Christina as well. She has a very wide sense of personal space. I don't. I don't have a hugely wide sense of. But you know, some people like you can kind of go up to them, uh, like the close talkers in Seinfeld, and they're not particularly bothered. Other people don't like you within ten feet of them. So when when it comes to strangers, she has a pretty wide sense of personal space, and so she's very proactive at maintaining that space, and she is very assertive when it comes to uh, any kind of aggression around her. And that, I think, comes from a number of things. It comes from the fact that uh, she's certainly allowed to correct me, that I will apologize to her at least once or twice a day, just for various little things like I do that are um, uh, not not ideal or whatever. And so she has that. Um, when we, We've had disagreements. Like, it's kind of funny. I won't get into the whole details, but we had disagreement about the color of a car in a cartoon. Uh, I could have sworn it was yellow, and Isabella was very firm that it was blue. And we talked about this. Uh, we were out. We talked about this off and on for like half a day. And I was so absolutely convinced that it was yellow that I was like, okay, we'll see. I'm not even going to argue with you because we'll see uh, who's right and who's wrong. And then we came home, and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> the car was blue, and I was wrong. And so I'm like, oh, you're absolutely right. And I said, who was right? She said, Isabella. I said, who was wrong? Dada, right? And so the fact that she's right and I was wrong, uh, I, I thought was great. I mean, I think that's fantastic. So the fact is that she, if she does, I can't imagine what she would do if she was hit. I mean, or if anybody yelled at her, I just, I can't imagine that. But uh, I, I do know that if, uh, if anybody uh, touches her when she doesn't want uh, her, that person to touch her, uh, she's very clear and very firm. Uh, and she's not, uh, she's not, she's assertive. She's not aggressive. She doesn't sort of scream at the kids or whatever, but she's very firm. Like, I don't like that. Don't touch Isabella. Uh, and I think that's fantastic because that's, you know, when she expresses her preferences to us, we, we take them very seriously. She has every right to her preferences. In fact, she has more right to her preferences than I do to mine because she's not in a situation of voluntarism and she can not achieve the things that she wants to in the way that I can. So 
I hope that helps. But say, how how would you prepare a child for that situation, if possible? For being hit? Well, yeah, like not not like yeah, a slap. Say say it's even um, in the supervision of an aunt or an uncle, and maybe they they don't have the same beliefs. Like how? No, but I I shouldn't. I mean that that is the price of spending time with my daughter. Is that people can't yell and hit her? I mean, that's just. The, I mean, if that ever would have happened, um, we would just take her out of that environment. And I can't imagine what would have me put her back in that environment. How do you feel like about self-defense classes? Well, I mean, if she's interested, um, I guess she could. Uh, I just, um, I, I don't think they're particularly necessary. I don't think she's going to operate in an environment where those things are going to be necessary. Uh, I think that. Uh, I mean, to me, you know, I mean, I, I understand the sort of health benefits of, of judo and karate and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, I think that it's sort of nonsense when it comes to self-defense. I mean, where people really need self-defense for the most part, if they're being aggressed against, is within their own family and they can't do that. And I think that uh, – I don't think she's – I don't think she's going to need those. I think that there's just a kind of implicit training that you have when it comes to uh, to children, which is if you respect their wishes and their preferences and try to accommodate them wherever possible and um, uh, don't squelch their assertiveness, then I think they'll be perfectly fine in this life, or at least as fine as you can, as you can be. Now, she may see a child hit another child or something like that uh, at some point, uh, but certainly none of her playmates uh, uh, are at all. Uh, aggressive. In fact, the playmates that she has who are older, the only thing they get tired of is carrying her around because she's a real lap cat as far as that goes. But um, yeah, that's um, uh, I just, A, wouldn't put her in that kind of environment and B, if she ever were exposed to that kind of environment, uh, I would simply take her out of it. I would apologize to her enormously. I would apologize to her enormously for putting her in that environment because that would be my responsibility. She doesn't choose her environments. I do. And so that would be my uh, my fault and my responsibility to to apologize to her for and to tell her, of course, that it was completely wrong, but that the wrong lay with me, uh, the wrong lay with the person who yelled at her hit her, but the wrong even more fundamentally would lay with me as as the duty to protect. And in like in that situation, have you ever, or could you ever like discuss it with the the adult and convince the adult of, of your beliefs or? I, I certainly wouldn't take that risk, right? I wouldn't take that risk because uh, I know how if somebody's willing to hit a child, I mean, oh, it, you know, I mean, uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm just sort of playing with her and she's across my lap or whatever, and I sort of think, I've thought about occasionally, like, I guess some parents will actually, you know, slap their child's rear end. You know, it is hitting. We like to use a euphemism called spanking, yeah, but course. it is hitting. Yeah. They will hit their child on a sensitive and tender area of the body and cause pain uh, to the point where the child will cry mm -hmm. and sob mm -hmm. and sometimes be unable to draw a clean breath. That is such a foreign mentality to me. That is such a foreign mentality to me that if somebody did uh, hit my daughter, I would never imagine that a mere conversation with me would undo whatever weird unprocessed trauma was driving them to hit that that child. And so, you know, if somebody did hit uh, and they said to me, oh my goodness, I can't believe I yelled at or I hit your child, I'm, I'm going to go into anger management, I'm going to go into therapy, I'm going to deal with all of this, I'm, you know, I don't expect you to trust me, but I can vow to you it's never going to happen again, I'm going to take whatever steps are necessary to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, 
I would respect and honor that person for the maturity and responsibility that they were taking. And I would let them do that therapy for six or 12 months. And then we would have another conversation and I would ask them how it was going and so on. And then I would ease them back into it with me being present if it was a relationship that I really wanted to keep. So, But yeah, it would not be uh, – I would not um, – just trust they say oh you know uh, that's unusual for me i won't ever do that again it's like well okay <laughs> but i you know i can't trust right because the person would have had mm. to have committed to me that they wouldn't do that in the first place and so they already have broken one commitment to me at the expense of my child i don't have the right to put my child in an environment where they're going to be uh, uh, aggressed against and i just don't have that right but but can you tell me why why these questions are important to you i mean i think they're great questions i just want to make sure that if there's a, something personal about it uh, if you could uh, let us know um Something per no 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 absolutely not I would say it, just because I'm like in in the probably near future I I will probably have kids and like I I would fully believe in your kind of principle um. It's the same. Look, it's, if you get married, sorry to interrupt, but if you get married and somebody hits your wife, I mean, what are you going to go around to a dinner party next week as well? Of course yeah, not. yeah, and and like I I kind of believe that. Um, like as an as as an adult, if if I you know take a crayon and write something on the wall, another adult is not going to slap me. So I just think it's terrible, absolutely terrible that we would like slap a child for doing that, like a poor defenseless child. And you know, I th I just think it's crazy. And yeah, for that reason, I think you're you're spot on in your beliefs. I think. I appreciate that. And uh, of course, it is my my hope and my goal that people understand that the people who have the most right to be protected from the mm -hmm. non-aggression principle are children. And that's where it has to start. So, all right. Listen, I'm sorry. We've got a bunch more callers. So if, you, if you've if you got enough of an answer, uh, if not, please uh, give me a shout uh, by uh, by email or whatever. But I should probably move on yeah, if that's thank right. You. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Thank you for your patience, uh, everybody. I'm so sorry. We um, we have uh, we being swarmed by brilliant and wonderful callers today. So thank you, everyone, who's taking the time to call in. And Kyle. next we have. Hey, Steph. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. How you I doing, man? I feel nervous. It's the first time I've called into the show. Well, ah, boop. <laughs> ah, boop, boop, boop. All right, I'm better. Um, <laughs> good, good. Lower the standards at all times. Yeah, I couldn't go any lower. So. I had a question about feelings and UPB, and all right. I was wondering if you would say that all feelings are UPB in the context of the perception from which they originate. Tell me, uh, just make. I want to make sure I understand what sure. you're saying. So, if you can just uh, break that out a little yeah, more. Yeah, like in other words, uh, when we're aware of the perception that led to a particular feeling. I was wondering if you think it always turns out that the feeling was just and UPB in response to the reality that we perceived, or whether you thought some feelings are unjust or non-UPB even in the context of the thought that preceded them. Can you give me, I just want to, because abstract stuff makes my head hurt. If you could just give it to me in a sort of practical example, that might help. And I think it's a great question, yeah. so I don't want to – and I think I understand it, but well, I just want to make sure. Well, it was kind of a tough question for me to formulate too, so I I may not be doing it, it justice, but 
That's all right. No, just we, we can take a minute. I think it's a great question. And I'm, you know, a, a, a complete uh, swing in the purse spandex slut for UPB <laughs> questions. So uh, I'm all for that. Uh, but uh, if you can just if you think of a more practical example, then I want to make sure I really understand it as best okay. I can. Okay. Um, well, say that I offer my friend a cookie and and then he experiences anger. And, you know, assuming he isn't diabetic or something and, and by offering him a cookie, I'm torturing him. But in the in the context of that of that situation in the present, I think his feeling of anger would be irrational because he's not being aggressed against in that situation or, or manipulated by me. Um, right. So, yeah, obviously I can, I can right. see that. Go ahead. So, um, yeah, so if only, if only the cognitive experience – if the only cognitive experience that he was having was me offering him the cookie, then I think his feeling would be irrational kind of in and of itself. But – if we know that, that feelings are always UPB, then uh, we could kind of automatically conclude that me offering him the cookie is kind of absolutely not the cause of his anger. And then we could look for, for further evidence of its roots, if that makes sense. Right. So uh, I'll just give you an example, if we can just switch it a bit, and let me know if this still fits within the paradigm that you're talking about. So the example would be, uh, you offer me a, um, a popsicle. And I get irritable because, I don't know, I have uh, sensitive teeth and I haven't gone to the dentist and it's reminded me that I need to go to the dentist and I haven't been to the dentist in years and I get all tense about it because I don't have enough money or I'm terrified of the dentist and so I get annoyed at you for bringing up all this crap within me. But of course, all you're doing is offering me a popsicle. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think that fits with what I'm saying. Well, you know, it, 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 it does it. <laughs> I just well, want to make sure yeah, like so, you that. feel frustration. Uh, the frustration, I think, it kind of makes sense that that. Uh, well, okay, so you feel anxiety because you don't like going to the dentist. So, I mean, that that fear, I guess, kind of makes sense. Um, and then you get frustrated. I guess, why are you getting frustrated? I could, I could end up angry. Well, I would get angry because. Uh, because I've been meaning to go to the dentist, but I just haven't because I've been giving in to my fear. And so the fact that you're offering me something that I want that I can't eat because I haven't gone to the dentist or whatever, I haven't started brushing with Sensodyne or whatever, then that just makes me annoyed because it reminds me of what I'm avoiding. It reminds me of, of, of not having self-care. And that may remind me of whatever happened in my childhood that would lead me to not have uh, self-care and so on. Yeah, and I guess what I was saying too is, so if you go back to a situation, say in your childhood, where, um, where, I guess in some way there was some sort of non-UPB action that took place, maybe between you and and your parents, like a rule they imposed on you or something that wasn't UPB, and then and then you felt anger, and so then you feel anger in the present moment. I mean, that anger in the present moment is sort of a just response to the situation that took place in the past. Right, right, right. So for instance, uh, if if my mom was like a real clothes horse and, and was very, very careful about her appearance, but she always dressed me like some sort of hobo, then that might be something that would be, you know, historically disturbing or annoying for me or whatever, right? Yeah, right, right. 
Okay, now let me just sort of break this down a little bit because um, now UPB, for those who don't know, sorry, is an acronym for Universally Preferable Behavior. Uh, it's a theory of ethics that I've been, I guess, promulgating for the past uh, couple of years, and it's available for free uh, as a book, uh, audio book and PDF uh, at um, uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash free. Uh, you can pick it up there. And uh, it's a way really of just insisting that uh, any statements regarding universally preferable behavior be logical and consistent and empirical. So I don't believe that UPB would specifically apply to emotional interactions. Now, what I mean by that is not to say that we shouldn't have any opinions about what's better or worse uh, when it comes to emotional interactions. But uh, UPB is specifically really about uh, violence, about the initiation of force. And that, I think, is really important to understand. So to me, if somebody's rude to me, uh, I obviously don't get to shoot them, right? <laughs> if they're, if they're, somebody snaps at me and says, oh, I, I can't believe that you would offer me this, this popsicle. I mean, that's just crazy, right? I mean, that's kind of rude. But I wouldn't get to blow them away, right? We, we accept that, yeah, right? Yeah, and I'm kind of wondering if, if just – by our nature, you wouldn't actually ever experience that sort of uh, intense rage or anger towards someone offering you a popsicle. That it's if you're experiencing those strong feelings, those are what I'm asking is, are those just feelings in the context that's actually precipitating them, like the the perception in your mind? Well, but what I'm saying, but one, sorry, and but what I'm what I'm sort of circling back to before we get to whether they're just or appropriate or whatever, is that these would not fall under UPB. Let's say that. Emotional politeness or or interpersonal consideration is forms around. Uh, it, it's called aesthetically preferable actions. Uh, they're different from UPB. UPB is actually enforceable, right? So universally preferable behaviors like the non-initiation of force, they are actually enforceable. Which is why if someone's running at you with a knife, you get to shoot them hopefully in the kneecaps and not be considered a bad guy because they because UPB supports uh, violence in terms of self-defense. Uh, but uh, but because it is a response to the initiation of force. UPB does not rationally support shooting people for being late, right? So you say, all right, I'll meet you at 7 o'clock. Some guy shows up at 8. You don't get to shoot him, right? Because what he's doing is not being violently inflicted upon you, and it's something that you have a choice to avoid, right? Because you can simply avoid making arrangements to meet with someone who's continually late. You may drop them from your circle of friends, or you may fire them if they're an employee, but they're not imposing things on you in the same way that some guy running at you with a knife is going to impose something on you. So uh, UPB, uh, I, I know I'm just tossing out a lot of conclusions. You can go to the book or the podcast or the videos or the articles or <laughs> I've got tons of resources around UPB. So I know I'm not making the arguments. I'm simply putting out the conclusions. But uh, UPB would say that, uh, yeah, honesty is better than falsehood. Uh, honesty is better than falsehood because anybody who says that falsehood is better than honesty uh, is making a true statement that they believe in. In other words, they're contradicting their own argument by the way that they're arguing it. So yeah, UPB would say that not yelling at people unjustly is better than yelling at people unjustly. And uh, But it would not say that you have the right to use force against such people. So it doesn't fall into UPB. It falls into aesthetically preferable actions. In other words, it's better if people are on time, but you still don't get to use force against them for being late. So as far as your, your, your relationship with this theoretical person goes, uh, if they start yelling at you because you offer them a popsicle, that is clearly not the way uh, to, to behave. It's not the way to do things. 
Uh, and you can test that very easily by yelling at them for something irrational and seeing whether they applaud or are hurt by your actions. And doubtless they will feel upset by it and would prefer that you didn't do it. Extrapolating that to universality gives you aesthetically preferable actions. So, uh, yeah, I think honesty is better. I think uh, not blaming other people for innocent things that they're doing because you have uh, emotional issues is certainly preferable. But it doesn't fall into uh, UPB because you cannot use force to, to, uh, to enforce it. Yeah, uh, maybe where I'm feeling kind of confused too is I'm talking about feelings and I'm kind of conflating them with UPB, but UPB is about behaviors and feelings are not behaviors, but they're responses. And so maybe it's I still feel a little a little foggy. Yeah, we can control. Yeah, we can control. Sorry, we can control our behaviors because because morality must be something to do with control. Right, Because if you can't control something, then you can't be morally responsible for it, which is why if somebody spits on me while they're having an epileptic attack, I don't get to throw them in jail for, I don't know, spittle assault or something like that. And so we can't control our feelings. We can control, for the most part, our actions. And so if I feel this irrational anger, I can't judge myself negatively for that, but I can certainly judge myself negatively or positively based upon what I do with that anger. So, yeah, you're right. It's really is around the actions more so than the, the feelings. Well, and do you sure. think that we could assume that if you feel anger that's irrational in, in the present context, can you assume that that anger is, is just in some other context? And so what would be important is then to figure out uh, kind of the, the cognitive process that preceded the anger and, and discover where that anger kind of was rational in, in your history? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll give you an example from when I was much younger that I think will fit in and tell me if it does or doesn't fit in with what you're saying. And um, uh, many, many years ago when I was in theater school, I was, uh, I was cast, typecasting of course, as a Balinese fisherman in a, in a play. And uh, I was supposed to propose to a woman as a Balinese fisherman. And of course, being a method actor, I did lots of research on Bali and even learned some of the local language in order to play this part. And I was supposed to offer this woman a fish in order to uh, get her to marry me. And uh, so the woman that I was living with at the time, uh, who was also an actress, we, we spent uh, some ridiculous amount of time creating a fish that was um, pretty cool. Uh, it was uh, like made of cloth and cardboard and all that and painted and all. It was a pretty cool fish. And we brought, I, I brought it in and the director didn't like it. And she actually ended up – I just ended up getting a real fish from a fish market to, to do it. She didn't like it. She thought it looked kind of silly and you know, it wasn't a real fish and you know, it was a pretty naturalistic play. And I got really hurt and upset by this because I was, I don't know, 20 or whatever and, and still quite – if not very immature emotionally – and was it rational for me to get upset? I didn't yell at the director or anything like that. I was just really hurt and upset, and it took me like a day or two to get over it. And was it rational for me to be upset because I put the work in? Well, um, I just suggested it to the director, and she said, go for it, and I tried it, and it didn't work out. I should have obviously done a, a sort of conceptual model or said, here's what I want to do and all of that. But I didn't have those skills at the time. I didn't know how to negotiate like that. And so I went off and did a whole bunch of stuff and then came back and, and uh, it was rejected and, and so on. And uh, but of course, this had to do with my family uh, in terms of uh, not feeling appreciated, not feeling like I knew what the parameters were, uh, not feeling that uh, I was uh, uh, understood and not feeling visible and so on. So these feelings of hurt and upset uh, went back to my family. They were being played out in this little interaction about a play. And uh, uh, that, I think, is, is closer. Yeah, I, I think any feelings of anger that feel irrational, I believe, have 
true roots and our true response to some other situation. It's just emotionally easier to pretend it has something to do with what's going on in the moment. Right. Yeah, and I kind of had one more question, but I know you got a lot of callers, so just cut me off if you need to. Um, but sure. uh, So I was thinking maybe what I was, because I was trying to make this connection between UPB and feelings, and maybe closer to what I was wondering is uh, if you think that that our feelings would kind of naturally respond rationally to the ethics of UPB, you know, assuming that we weren't dealing with psychological defenses. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I genuinely see, uh, yeah, our deepest feelings tend to be pretty universal in my experience. Uh, so I think that our feelings very strongly support uh, UPB. So for instance, um, uh, people are generally pretty horrified by rape. And as it turns out, uh, rape is uh, uh, completely contradicted by any rational theory of, of ethics that conforms to the sort of UPB standard. Uh, the same thing is true with uh, things like murder. And the same thing is true uh, of, of things like uh, theft and, and assault and all these kinds of things. So that which tends to be common throughout emotionally developed systems of ethics, right? Because all ethics systems that we have received from history are emotionally developed. They're not developed through philosophy because the philosophy of ethics has remained pretty irrational throughout most of human history. So, uh, so yeah, we, we know that emotions accord with UPB in their deepest sense because emotionally generated uh, ethical systems accord with rationally derived ethical systems through UPB. So, yeah, I think that does work very yeah. well. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Good on ya. Good on ya, mate. You wouldn't believe the amount of children's uh, movie lines I have in my head. It's it's sad and indicative of a truly bad media-based parenting style. <laughs> we have a caller from the 401 area code up next. 401, wonderful, I'd say. Hi, how can I help you? Yes, hello? Hello? Hi. Yes. Hi, can you hear me? Go ahead. Oh, no. I sure okay. can. Um, wow, this is actually my first time calling in. I've actually been a uh, li uh, I'm pretty new listener to uh, the Free free Domain Radio podcast. I started out on the um, YouTube channels and worked my way up to the actual website. Um, and, you know, first off, before I ask, ask my question, I just wanted to say, you know, um, I have a lot of um, admiration for the work that you're doing, and I feel like it's very important, and it kind of really clicked right away. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I hope the donators are listening to this, too, because that's the only reason I'm able to do it. But uh, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Um, but so my question is pretty much a relationship-based question. Um, right. I... Pretty much, uh, I have been dating this girl for approximately well, about four months, and I, you know, throughout throughout um, throughout, uh, you know, my life, I kind of always felt like like I made too much sense. If that makes any sense, <laughs> you know. I <laughs> know. I hear you. I hear you. Um, and, like, I've always had a knack for kind of seeing things, you know, as they are and asking why. 
and um, I I've always kind of opted out of the um, the herd mentality when it comes to a lot of things. So I guess in my community, I would be considered you know pretty weird, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, back to what I was I uh, wanted to ask. Um, and I've been dating I've been dating, dating this girl for about four months, and you know we had very very um similar backgrounds as far as you know uh you know where we're where we're from um family history uh just like ridiculously similar you know we're both uh both from the same neighborhood both uh you know actually doing something with our lives you know come from um you know urban life I'm sorry to, to annoy you. I just want to make sure that we have enough time for the next callers. If you could just move to, let's assume that you're a smart guy, you're an independent thinker, because you're listening to this show and that there's a lot that you have in common, but what's the actual issue that I can help okay. you with? Um, so my question is, is it possible to um, to open the eyes of other people around you? Like, what is what would be the... Um, the steps one would take to kind of get people on the same wavelength, if that's the case. Right. Right. So what you're saying is that um, your girlfriend, uh, if I understand this rightly, and tell me if I'm wrong, but your girlfriend uh, is obviously a good person and a reasonable person, but she has not so far been challenged with the extension of, say, the non-aggression principle, which I'm sure she accepts in her personal life and her career and so on. She's not been challenged with that extension of it to, say, a social context. Is that right? Right, right, right. Well, first of all, you can't open somebody else's eyes. I mean, even physically, right? Right, so I think, you know, if, if that's a metaphor you're working with, you, you can't open their eyes uh, because that's their choice to open or close their eyes, right? So there's not nothing you can do that's going to open somebody's eyes, for sure. Um, but there are things I think you can do which can make it more likely that they will be encouraged, right? So the, the best thing that I think can think of is to, uh, to live your values yourself. Now, we assume, or at least I think we assume that, you know, that old equation, reason equals virtue equals happiness, that if we have rational values and we put them into action uh, by being virtuous, that we're going to be happier. You can't exactly say happy because unfortunately the um, the world is irrational to the point where being rational creates lots of problems, right? Like if you're not a racist in the deep south in 1930, you have some social problems, right? Because everyone's like, hey, let's go lynch this black guy. And you're like, I don't really want to. <laughs> and people are like, what do you mean you don't want to? And so when you are rational in an irrational environment, it's hard to say that reason simply breeds happiness, you know, like you're just happy, dum-de-dum, like there's no problems in your society or anything like that. So that's uh, one thing that I would sort of mention that, that there is going to be some limits to your happiness. But I do believe that it's better to be rational than to be irrational uh, in, in the current world. So I think if you simply are happy, then I think that people will be curious if they want to be happy and if they understand that something's missing from their happiness, right? Because it's really important to understand that, uh, you know, people as a whole 
they're not very happy, right? They're, they're not very happy. Uh, what is it? One in 10 Americans is on antidepressants. And uh, that doesn't even account all the people who are uh, either suffering through it silently or who are uh, not uh, on medication but are pursuing some other form of hopefully more viable treatment like talk therapy or whatever. But uh, there are druggies and, and alcoholics, as, as James has pointed out in the chat room. Yeah, there's there's a lot of violence in relationships. I mean, in England, uh, 70 to 90 percent of parents hit their children. And I don't believe that hitting children is any path to anything other than uh, guilt, shame and, and misery. So I think that and, and think of all the anxiety that people have right caught in this terrible machinery of a quasi-fascistic, quasi-free market economy. Think of all the people in the public sector who know, know, sure as sunrise, that their employment opportunities are going to be cut. I mean, half a million government employees were laid off last year alone. Think of all of the people who were stuck on this, you know, they get up to 99 weeks of, un that's almost two years of unemployment insurance. They're really, really uh, stuck. Think of all the people who are on uh, food stamps. Uh, so what somebody's saying is at least 15% of the U.S. population. Uh, think of all, all the teachers who are stuck in really destructive work environments or all the government workers uh, or all the people who are stuck in bad unions or all the people – half of marriages fail. Think of the amount of misery that comes out of divorce. Think about, about the amount of misery that people suffer in for years before they decide to take a major step like like getting divorced. Think of all the unhappiness of the children who are stuck in divorced households and shuttling back and forth if they're lucky between parent to parent, if they even get to see the other parent at all. So you know, think of all the people who are at war. Geez, those people aren't happy unless they're complete psychos. And think about all the people who are worried about all the people who are at war. And uh, I mean, think about the people who come home from war and how difficult it is for them to adjust. I mean, you could go on and on, right? But there's a lot of misery in the world. And so if you're a happy person, and it's not fake, right? It was genuine. Then I think that you have a reasonable, you're going to have a reasonable curiosity from people. So be happy and be be clear about your happiness. Be open about your happiness. And yeah, somebody's written here said my parents' marriage was crappy. It died after five years, and they finally divorced after another five years. Oh yeah, a divorce is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to misery. The the effects go before and after, year after year after year. It's just a divorce is a huge catastrophe. So be happy and be clear and open about uh, your happiness. And then, then you're like this, right? I've used this metaphor before, so I'll just touch on it briefly here. But then you're like this. So you're, you're on a land, uh, you're on an island where everybody weighs 400 pounds and you get down to 200 pounds. And so you can climb up to get the coconuts. You can swim with the dolphins. You can uh, do cartwheels. You can dance on the sand. You can do the rumba and the limba and all these kinds of fun dances. And some people won't have any, any interest in doing that because they just want to, you know, stiff their face, uh, stuff their face in the potato chip bowl. But some people will have an interest in doing that. And those people are going to say, wow, you seem to be pretty happy at 200 pounds. I'm just, my knees hurt all the time. I am short of breath. I can't climb the stairs. Uh, I, 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 got, I wake up half the time like I can't breathe. I got sleep apnea. And they're going to say, I'd really like to know how you got down to 200 pounds. And those are the people you want to talk to. But there's no point being somebody who's 400 pounds lecturing other people who are 400 pounds that they need to lose weight. So the first thing you need to do is get yourself right, get yourself happy, get your unhappy fat off your body, so to speak. And then I think you're going to be a beacon for those people who get it and who want to. I don't think we're at the place yet where we can go chasing people around, telling them to lose weight. But we can say, here's the life I have without all this extra weight. If you're interested, I'd be happy to share with you. It's not easy, but it's worth it. So would you say that is the 
answer to uh, to institutionalized unhappiness because it seems like um, just from that picture um, that that's what's going on in you know our society and the world you know as we live in like everybody's just kind of caught up to you know unhappy is the norm and anything else is frightening and um you know and scary yeah i i I do believe that i really do believe that i mean let me just take one second here to dig up some statistics uh, on um they just they just came out these statistics just came out about um uh, how much uh, weight has has uh, in, increased uh, in uh, in America? It it really is quite quite astonishing. It's like I think ten or fifteen years ago, there were um, uh, no states with obesity above twenty percent. Now there's only two states with obesity below twenty percent, uh, like significant obesity. Uh, weight gain in the U.S. has been just just enormous. Now. You know, understand this is complete bullshit because I have no expertise in the field. So these are just my thoughts on the issue. I mean, I think there's lots that contribute. There's lots of stuff that contributes to weight gain. Uh, I think that um, uh, kids are having less opportunity to to run outside. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I mean, I, I was walking to school when I was seven or eight, and it was a long way uh, to to get to school. And I was just out all day uh, and out all evening and uh, uh, riding bikes and playing football or soccer as you'd <laughs> call it here and uh so i was just really really active and that's really run through or continued through my whole life i just activity is is the key and um i think kids have that opportunity i think a lot of schools have dropped a uh, gym now we used to get like an hour every day or two uh, at school i think a lot of schools have, have uh, cut that i think the price for getting involved in sports has gone up and I think as people's incomes have stagnated, it's become harder for parents to get their kids into sports. Certainly, they, there's more uh, there's more incentive to stay in because video games and movies and you know 45 mile flat screen digital TVs are much more compelling than going outside and looking at trees. So there's sort of heightened competition there. Uh, certainly, I think it's much harder for two parents working to organize sports for their kids than it is for one parent working. And I think that's, uh, that's also hard. Uh, certainly the injection of pretty weird, gross artificial stuff as a result of government controls and subsidies like fructose, glucose into lots of kids' foods. It's hard, you know, as a parent, I mean, I, I won't let her eat that stuff. I won't let my daughter eat that stuff. It's really hard to find stuff that doesn't have that injected into the very atoms that compose the food. So it's, uh, I think that's, but I think more fundamentally, I think that the reason that obesity is increasing is because everybody's stressed out as shit because we live in end of empire times. Everybody knows that the system doesn't work. Everybody knows. Yeah, I'm going to break into a Leonard Cohen song. Everybody knows. But everybody knows that the pillars of history are falling and we are directly in its line of shadow. And I think that creates a great deal of stress. Everybody knows that our current system is unsustainable. Everybody knows that money is about to vaporize. Everybody knows that oil is getting harder to find. Everybody knows that environmental problems are increasing in many ways. Everybody knows that the system that we have fundamentally doesn't work and that there are storms coming our way. And the less people talk about it, the more they eat because they're stressed. And so I think that has a lot to do with it as well. And I think that's another indication of just how unhappy people are. Okay. So, 
Uh, it's funny. Um, so people kind of have this mentality of, oh, I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and hope for the best. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a way of avoiding it. And, and there's, to some degree, that's rational, right? I mean, what can you do about the deficit? Well, not a whole hell of a lot, right? Except the stuff that I suggest around voluntarism and ostracism, uh, and people find that even more stressful. Uh, and the other thing that's true is I think that uh, as economic uncertainty increases, people feel less inclined to test their relationships based on merely abstract things like personal virtue. So again, that's why I sort of said in a video the other day, like I really understand why people don't want to push their relationships. They may consider it too late and they might need their tribe when the shit hits the fan. So I can understand that. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a sort of rational ignorance to it, but it is, um, it's really hard living in times as disasters get more intense. The, um, uh, the propaganda intensifies and propaganda is, is an intense assault on sanity. Right, and propaganda is an intense assault on sanity, and uh, that is really, really hard for people uh, to see because the more they see their sanity being assaulted, the more they see that they are in fact just tax livestock and and not they have no respect from the people in power. So, yeah, I think I think people are having a pretty stressful and difficult and negative time of it, and you know people kind of sold their soul to the devil, right? I mean, they gave up their children for the sake of having a career, and now they found that. The, you know, they didn't have that time with their kids. Their career hasn't turned out the way that they wanted to, right? Because all that happened was um, uh, they went into a job and they were encouraged to go into a job by groups funded by the government, feminists and other groups, so that they could be taxed because the work that they were doing at home wasn't taxed. You get people to go into the workforce, you substitute cheap-ass labor for the intimacy and warmth and care of a primary caregiver, usually a mom, and so they went out and they had their career and they missed out on their their kids' lives. And like we were out of town a little while ago and um, uh, I was uh, – uh, we were at a playground. And uh, actually, no, it was just, just Izzy and I actually. It's just Izzy and I were at a playground uh, out of town. And I was chatting with some parents uh, as Izzy was playing with their kids uh, for, for I just like about a minute or two. And they were telling me, oh, yeah, you know, we drop our kids off at daycare at – 7.30 in the morning, we picked them up at 6 o'clock at night. And this was at about 7 o'clock. And there were two three-and-a-half-year-old kids who were playing there. And they were playing with Izzy. And we were uh, – I was playing with them. We were playing hide-and-go-seek and, and, and uh, a game that Izzy calls, Bleh! because what happens is uh, I, I sort of go up and go, Bleh! and I sort of chase the kids around in it's sort of very primordial, panther-like way. And we were playing that. And, and then we, Izzy's really interested in culverts at the moment. So we went down, we found some culverts and I told them a story of someone in a culvert and then we sang some songs. And I, I was just, and the whole time, this is got to be about, this was close to an hour that I was playing with Izzy and these two other kids. And the whole time, the parents were just talking. And I was like, but you just drop your kids off in the morning. They're gone for hours, like what, 11 or 12 hours. And, and then you go to the park and you're not playing with them. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why do you have these children? But, um, yeah, so, you know, people I think are now looking back and saying, well, you know, my career is kind of stalled. If I'm even lucky enough to have a job, uh, I was lured away from my kids. And so I don't have that same intimacy with them. And, uh, you know, things are pretty miserable. I mean, the devil will tempt you with everything. Uh, that feels good in the moment, and then only afterwards do you realize what the price is. And uh, I think it's just heartbreaking the degree to which people have become 
Uh, so many people have become so distant from their kids as a result of a, a fairly artificially stimulated ambition. Okay. Um, well, I have a couple more questions, but I I have to wait to uh, you know uh, less busy. Hey, we're we're on every week, man. You are always welcome back. Those are great questions, and I hope that things uh, work out with uh, uh, with your girlfriend. Uh, but yeah, slow and steady, and remember that uh, it's really really hard to uh, to pop out of the matrix. So you know, be gentle and be slow, and don't overwhelm her. And uh, I hope that she will uh, she will wake up in the way that works for you. And uh, if it's too intense for her, you know, back off for a little bit, and and so on. But um, it it it's the direction, not the speed, that counts. I think. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Caller from the four one two area code. You're up. Do you mean 214? That's good. We are doing the force this week, so this works out well. How are you doing, man? 214, Eric Good. Yes, that's me. Can you hear me? I sure can. How are you doing, Stefan? I'm very well. How are you doing? I've got two lightning quick comments before I get into what I wanted to talk about. Um, One is a a small little story. Um, I recently moved in with a new roommate, and uh, one of my roommates is always on um, Skype and whatnot. And... um, I was sitting out, out there listening to her, chatting with her, one of her friends, and the voice sounded really familiar. And after about 15 minutes, I realized that it was Jake from True Transmissions. <laughs> so um, I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Um, the second thing is I'd like to add myself to the um, the list of, I forget how you, how you um, phrased it, the shit miserable people or something, um, because despite having a, a master's degree, in mathematics, I'm working at a Taco Bell today, which I actually left crying today because that rea- that reality hit me. <laughs> so. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, first of all, because you have a master's degree in mathematics, I already feel inferior and intimidated. No, no. <laughs> just so you know, because I have a bit of a math phobia. But uh, I, no, I, I must say, I, I find I find mathematics to be one of these arcane sciences that really, really impresses me. <laughs> Uh, it's like people who can just pick up languages, which I'm not yeah. very good at, except computer languages. So I just wanted to say that is really impressive to me. I, I think that is a really hard thing to do. So good for you, and I'm so sorry about where you've ended up. But uh, please okay. go on. You don't need to feel impressed or anything. I wish I had, instead of all of those skills, I wish I had more people skills and, and that kind of thing, and I think it'd be set. But you're going to love my next question because it's kind of mathematical. <laughs> um, I- <laughs> oh, 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 I just peed myself a little bit. Go on. I'll, I'll just, I'll walk it okay. off. <laughs> so back in um, February of 2009, we did the infamous um, determinist free will debate. And I wrote up a little response that I had to that. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I had some comments that have been itching at me ever since then. So, please do. I'm sorry? Yeah, so, please go ahead. Um. So I'm neither a determinist or a free will advocate. I just I just don't know. Um, I think it's a kind of subjective thing that we may or may not ever know. But there were a couple of ideas that never got brought up in the conversation. I'd like to bring them up and just put them out there. Um, so there are two ideas that I think are relevant to the, the whole issue. One is um, the idea of correspondence. And by that, I mean the correspondence that exists, for example, between an actual geographic region and that region on a map, or um, correspondence between a prediction of whatever, whether it be weather or a physics thing, to the reality that's observed. 
Um, the second concept that I'm going to apply here is... Um, Sorry, I just want to make sure I get the first one because, uh, you know, go, go slow with me here because this is somewhat, somewhat new language for me. So correspondence would be I have a prediction about the way a balloon is going to either float up or float down based on whether it has oxygen or helium with it. And the correspondence is between my theory and whether the balloon floats up and down. Right, is that right? Absolutely. Okay, got it. Hey, look at that first try. I feel like I've got a degree already, but sorry. You go an on. A on your first quiz. Okay, so the Woo. second concept is um, – a method of interacting with something. So, for example, drinking has the method of, I'm sorry, water has the, drink, the method of drinking. You can drink it. That makes sense to drink, you know, water. Uh, it doesn't make sense to, to drink steel, for instance. At least not too much sense. Um, so, you were talking about the uh, sort of boulder analogy. If boulder was rolling down a hill and um, you have some notion of which way it should go. Um, and you start yelling at it, like, you know, go left, go left, go right, go right. <laughs> um, like you said, that, that would be basically insane for criticizing which way it goes, because... Um, and trust me, I'd done that several times to see if it worked or not, because I was, I thought, I thought, man, if this works, I've got a whole different right? kind of show that I can probably <laughs> take on the road to Vegas, get showgirls, flash pots, you know, electric bunnies, the whole thing. So I had tested this a number of times uh, and just got uh, swamped with, with boulders. So I was, I was taking it very personally. But I figured please, come you on. had, I figured you tried that. <laughs> but um, see, the, the thing that you said was that the insanity of, of doing that came from the fact that um, that there is no right or wrong way for a boulder to go. You said it's insane because there's not a right or wrong way for it to go. Um, I think. Well, and you can't change it because its its path is determined by physics. And, and that doesn't mean that we know where it's going to land, but we know that our yelling at it isn't going to make any difference, okay. right? Um, I agree with that. I just wanted to um, clarify that because it, it seemed like you were saying it, it's, it doesn't make sense because there's not a right or wrong way for the boulder to go. But um, the problem is really that it's not... Um, a rational um, method of interacting with the boulder. Um, like yelling or talking are, are rational methods for interacting between people because it can produce an effect. You know, they can tell what you're saying. Yeah, and it's only rational, but it's only rational, just to be clear, uh, it's only rational if we accept that there is a right and wrong way for people to, or a right or wrong things for people to believe and that our talking is going to have an effect. Those are the two things that are necessary. Neither of those are present in a rock, right? So a rock falling down, as, as, and this is not for you, you understand, but just for other people who haven't seen the debate. Uh, so a rock falling down a hillside, there's no right or wrong way for it to land. Now, we may prefer that it doesn't land on our car, but you know there is no morally right. We don't sort of put it in jail for vandalizing our car if it lands on our car. So we know that it's not... Um, uh, that its its path is predetermined. That it's it has the rock has no choice about where it's going to land, and also we understand that our interacting with the rock verbally is not going to do anything. And so those are the two things. And and those two things are not present if we're having a debate with another human being. Another human being by having a debate and attempting to correct the other person's erroneous beliefs, we're saying there's such a thing as truth and falsehood, right and wrong. It's better to um, to believe things that are true than to believe things that are uh, untrue. And also that our verbal interactions are going to have an effect on the other person. Not for certain, but, you know, certainly they have some effect, right? right? So I just wanted to clarify that for other people okay. who are listening. Yeah, and I think, I think some of those things you just made were, I think, not present in, in the debate before. But um, that's kind of the, the key point that I wanted to address. Um, you, you say there's no right and wrong way for a 
boulders to, to roll down the hill. Um, and of course, like ethically, there's not, but I think um, you need to be careful about how you define right and wrong because whether it's ethics or a physical prediction, um, right and wrong, I think, um, depend on that first idea that I brought up, which is correspondence. Um, something is right, um, whether it's a physical phenomenon or an ethical situation, if it corresponds to the, the framework or the theory that we have for it. So if it's a personal interaction, then it's right if it corresponds to, um, you know, UPB. Um, and if it's a physical situation, then I would say the, the right way for a boulder to fall would be one that is in line with with our, our theory. And in that case, if, if it fell, fell differently, it wouldn't be the boulder that was wrong, but the, the theory that was wrong. But... Um, Right, right. So I, I think we agree on that. I, I certainly would. Uh, certainly, since you've mentioned UPB in a positive light, I'm a slave to your every whim. So please go on. <laughs> That's pretty much all I had. All I had to say is <laughs> um, that the reason that yelling at a boulder is wrong is because boulders don't respond, whereas we do. So. Um, I'm being mathematical. Well, I look. I agree with you. No, I I agree with you, but but that is embedded in the question of determinism versus free will. So. Um, uh, so, for instance, uh, if um, uh, if you yell at a rain cloud, the rain cloud, in a sense, does change based on you yelling at it. In insofar as you're expelling some breath and some volume, that's going to affect where the raindrops are falling in your immediate vicinity, or at least in the immediate vicinity in front right. of your mouth or whatever. Right. So that is having some effect. the The argument really is that. You know, the, the question I always have about determinism is uh, – I'm not expecting you to answer it, and of course, unless you want to – is I have a great deal of difficulty with beliefs that don't seem to make any difference to people, right? So what I always – I'm not saying you're a determinist, but what I always want to ask for determinists, and I have asked this many, many times, is, okay, so what changes when you become a determinist, right? So if I become an anarchist, then what changes? Well, um, I no longer accept the validity of… Uh, of the state, and so I have to make debates against the state, and I, there's a whole sort of thing. If I become an atheist, what's the behavior that changes? Well, I no longer go to church, uh, you know, unless it is to try and get other people to give up their illusions or whatever. Uh, I don't pray uh, anymore, and uh, I don't expect there to be things after death. I don't read the Bible except as literature, and so on, right? So there's things that change uh, if you have particular beliefs. And um, somebody who believes that, you know, alcoholism is really destructive should I, you know, probably one of the results of that will be that they're not an alcoholic or at least not anymore or that they, they're not married to an alcoholic or whatever. So do beliefs change, uh, change actions? Do they change behavior? And uh, my sort of uh, – if a determinist says to me, uh, Steph, you are a complex system whose inputs and outputs are all predetermined. Well, that's fine. Okay. I, I mean, I can accept that as a definition. In other words, I am weather. I am the wind. I am the wither. I am the weather. You know, we don't know exactly what the weather's going to do. We have some general ideas, but we don't know exactly what the weather's going to do. But the fact that it's complex does not grant it free will. And so if somebody's defining me as the weather, then the first thing they should do is stop debating me because you don't debate with the weather, right? Because there's no point because the weather is just going to do what the weather's going to well, do. That, that's the thing. I, and I so... Yeah, please. Um, even though, you know, if, if we're just complex beings and don't have free will, if we're, if we're deterministic, um, like you said, talking amongst each other um, or yelling or whatever um, still has an effect on each other. And even if the world is deterministic, um, 
we don't know any difference. Like we can't tell if it's free, you know, if there's free will or determinism. Um, so I think in either case, um, the discussion that goes on between us still makes sense. Um, and that's really all I had to say. That was the... Well, no, but except that there are certain things that are implicit in debating, right? That, that if you're going to have a debate, then you have to debate. Uh, sorry, then you have to accept the premises of a debate. Uh, otherwise, you are rejecting. Like, so, I mean, for instance, to take an example I've used before, if I say to you, uh, uh, I, Steph, am incomprehensible, right? Then either you've understood what I've said, in which case, I am comprehensible, right? Or I, um, you have not understood what I've said, in which case I know that I'm incomprehensible and therefore why would I try to communicate to you that I am incomprehensible, right? So if I just said, bing, 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 right? Then you wouldn't know what I meant other than I perhaps needed to pee. Uh, so, so if I say to you I am incomprehensible, I am using the assumption of comprehensibility to communicate that I am incomprehensible. And of course, that just doesn't work fundamentally. If I say nothing is true, I'm using the statement of truth to say that nothing is true. You, you understand. I mean, these are obvious examples. Now, if uh, people believe in determinism, then any debate is fundamentally identical to two rain clouds crashing into each other. Right? Yeah, they have an effect on each other. No question. It's called lightning and thunder and all the other things that make me hide under the bed, right? So uh, now if we see two rain clouds crashing into each other, we do not call that a debate, right? Because neither one of them is right or wrong. Neither one of them can verbally interact with and affect each other. And so if determinists wish to define human beings as rain clouds, which is what determinism fundamentally is, well, that's fine. Then don't debate with a rain cloud and don't say that there's anything true or false about the directional pattern of a rain cloud and certainly don't uh, attempt to interact with a rain cloud and change it through language. Uh, that just wouldn't make any sense because it's just two rain clouds crashing into each other. And so my question to determinists is, okay, I should never ever hear about determinism. I should never hear about it because in the same way that a rain cloud never hears a debate about whether rain clouds are good or bad because nobody sits there, nobody gets a big ladder, climbs up to a rain cloud and says, you know, I have some problems with you because I just watered my lawn and now you're raining and I have to pay for that water, which I didn't need to use anyway. That is incredibly inconsiderate. And can I talk to your mother, please? Because I just don't think you've been taught well. I mean, that, we would look at that as the actions of a crazy person, right? I mean, that would be bad comedy. And uh, this is what determinism is. Uh, if I'm a rain cloud, then treat me like a rain cloud and stop talking to me. I don't mean you, right? But just the, the argument. Well, itself. I don't want to be that or anything, but um, I just, I do see like a, a slight disagreement with, with that. And the um, disagreement that I have is that rain, rain clouds don't have, as far as we know, different degrees of happiness. And if if we could determine whether... Um, the universe was more deterministic or free will. That might affect that might affect the um, the kind of decisions that we make, and that might affect the degrees of happiness that that everyone experiences in the future. Um, just because. Ah, but you see, you've just introduced an enormous uh, brain dump of fudge into the <laughs> equation, which you know I, I I understand. But you said more deterministic or more right. free will. But it's binary, right? It's binary. If we have one percent of free will, then free will exists, right? right. right? It is a binary equation, at least according to the people. Because, look, I, I recognize there's a huge amount of stuff that is determined. I mean, do, do I do I believe that my gender has nothing to do with my way of thinking? Well, of course it does. I imagine that it's largely a social construct, but so what? It still is, right? 
The fact that I'm a white male, does that have anything to do with my experience of the world? Of course, I didn't choose any of those things. The fact that I was not born with cystic fibrosis, does that have any effect on, of course it does. That's not a choice that I've made, right? So I, I completely, I mean, this is just one of 10 billion things you could talk about, right? My, my genetics, my epigenetics, all of the things that combined, did I choose the family I was born into? Did that have an effect? Of course it did. But, so, so I accept that the world is, you know, you could even say largely predetermined. I mean, the fact that I was born in, in the privileged West as opposed to uh, Zimbabwe, uh, I mean, good Lord, how lucky can you get, right? And so, uh, so I, I agree with you that there's huge amounts of determinism within the world and that we should not that, – that it is actually, I think, very destructive and abusive to ascribe to free will things which are unchosen and accidental. Uh, that's like saying to some poor black kid born to you know, some welfare mom – to take a cliche – some welfare mom in a ghetto, that that's exactly the same – as you know, me, Steph, uh, the white male who went to a pretty privileged white boarding school. Well, it wasn't white, but it was functionally white. Uh, you know, when I was six or eight, and has had the opportunity to live in a wide variety of countries, and uh, who has uh, a fairly good head on his shoulders, and uh, and so on. It, it's not fair because then that just person, that person feels like crap, and I feel unjustly vain for all of the positive circumstances that I was ex accidentally exposed to. So I agree with you that there's a huge amount of destructive. Uh, problems with extending to choice that which is actually circumstantial, but uh, the free will versus determinism question itself, and I think most determinists would agree with me on this, not that they would view it as agreeing, but rather just bumping into my rain cloud. <laughs> that does sound like a good song about determinism, bumping into my rain cloud. Rap with me, sister. Anyway, but um, I would say that, um, uh, that they would say there's none. No free will. As soon as any free will comes in, then we're no longer in a determinist universe. Well, great. Thanks. I now have peace on the matter <laughs> now that I've that. <laughs> excellent and until until you talk to your next determinist and then we'll talk again <laughs> because it's a challenging topic and I really appreciate you bringing it up well thanks for talking to me you've frightened my day a little bit <laughs> thank you I appreciate that and listen if you want to ever, ever want to call in and talk about your unhappiness I think that would be a well worthwhile topic I really don't think that you're alone in it I think there are some things that philosophy can do with regards to unhappiness, and I don't want to pretend that you didn't say that because that's a very, very important okay. thing and more important than free will versus determinism. So if you ever want to talk about that, just drop Thank me a line. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Uh, correction time. Uh, I said in my interview with uh, Jeffrey Tucker, or my conversation with Jeffrey Tucker, and I apologize for this. I even at the time was not even, I was pretty sure that it was wrong, but I didn't want to stop, uh, that um, uh, I said uh, Aeschylus. Uh, as far as the guy who had the wax wings and was uh, going up and he got them uh, fried off uh, by the sun and uh, and fell down and, and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, I said that uh, in um, – let me just make sure I get the name right again, this, right? Uh, so I meant Icarus. So I said Aeschylus, but I meant Icarus. It was close and it would be a bad rhyme, but that wasn't quite correct. I also did not correct Adam Kokesh um, just because of the flow of the show. I didn't want to interrupt him at that time. But there is a correction in the last time that I was on Adam versus the man. Uh, he talked about um, uh, that uh, uh, Richard Nixon was uh, giving his speech uh, at the Bohemian Grove, which launched his presidential ambitions in 1971. Uh, this is not true. Nixon went into power, I believe it was 1969, because by 1971, he'd already taken – America off the gold standard. 
So uh, thank you for the people. Uh, I, I knew the es- I think I checked the Aeschylus thing right afterwards because I was like, damn, that was close, but I don't think that was quite right. So I, I apologize for that. And uh, thank you for uh, the people who wrote and said, dude, what the hell do you know? You know, it's funny. <laughs> it's almost like, this. I mean, some people are very nice about it, but a lot of people who are like, ah, what do you know? I can't believe if I, if I can't trust you on this, how can I trust you on anything? And, ah, right. So anyway, people can be a little bit calmer about the errors that I make because I will always strive to give better information and, uh, and correct them. So uh, if you want to type a last question in, we have a couple of minutes before the end of the show. And thank you. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks, James, as always. And thank you to uh, all the callers today. Um, just a, Oh, my God. I just Being any part of this hive brain uh, is really, really just astounding. Uh, and uh, it is really, really um, uh, a great uh, honor that people uh, share their thoughts with me to this degree. And uh, I really, really do appreciate it. And I hope that people will keep doing it because it's um, sort of important that uh, this conversation keep going, I think. I'm just going to scroll back a little bit here and see if I missed any other questions. Do, 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 do. Free will versus determinism is the medal round at the Philosophy Olympics. <laughs> That's right. It's the people with the most noodly arms you could ever imagine. Uh, somebody emailed me this um, uh, from the European FDR group and said, uh, have you ever found anybody who had a hard time with UPB and then uh, figured it out eventually? Uh, Yes. Uh, I think that would be everybody. And that would be including me. Uh, And so (laughs) I think that's really, really important uh, to to remember. UPB is uh, a mofo of an approach. And uh, it's also important to remember that... um, uh, uh, see, there's two things I want to clarify. Yeah, so UPB can refer to three things, and I don't know how to solve it. Uh, when I do UPB part two, uh, I will definitely work on this. But UPB can refer to the book. Uh, UPB can refer to the framework, uh, the framework uh, of UPB, in other words, how you analyze moral theories. And UPB can also refer to the theories which are validated by the framework. So if if that seems confusing, let me see if I can clear it up. So let's say I'm Francis Bacon in the 16th century, and I write a book called The Scientific Method. And the scientific, uh, uh, no, I write a book called Science. I write a book called Science. And then people start using the word science. Are they referring to the book? Are they referring to science, i.e. the scientific method, the, the theory by which you validate scientific hypotheses? Or are they referring to hypotheses which at least have been tentatively validated according to the scientific method? Uh, so uh, UPB falls into that category. I don't know exactly how to uh, how to solve it. Um, UPB A, B, C, I don't know. That's a pretty crappy way of doing it. I will try and figure something out. If you have any good ideas, please let me know. But uh, that is uh, that is the challenge. But uh, I still really do want to um, uh, I still really do want to write the UPB checklist, and I will get down to that. I'm just uh, pretty busy at the moment uh, doing a couple of other projects and. Uh, Still working off and on on a new book, so one of these kinds of things. Yeah, no, it has. Uh, we haven't had. I don't know determinism. Somebody wrote. Uh, I've been trying to catch up on podcasts. You were talking about it in every call-in show from 2006 that I've heard so far. Yes, determinism. It has been quite some time since we've had a chat about uh, about determinism. And uh, oh, I remember what I wanted to talk about. Sorry, we just got a little bit over. Um. 
Oh, yeah. Somebody said, it's very weird to listen to old podcasts and new ones at the same time. I feel like I have five years of listening to do before I can ask a question. No, uh, don't feel that. I mean, <laughs> feel that if you want, but hopefully that won't dictate your behavior. Uh, I want people who are just starting out in the podcast to feel perfectly and completely free to talk about subjects uh, without having to plow through every podcast. Uh, philosophy, th this show in particular, the Sunday show, the Sunday show is about your questions, right? It's not, a, don't feel like the, 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 uh, the, the kid in the advanced physics class asking why helium balloons go up. Uh, this is not what it is. This is not, this is not a graduation situation. And this is the challenge, of course, of this show. There's some people who've got lots of experience in philosophy. They've listened to lots of these shows or other shows or taken it in school or whatever. But this show is about your questions, your questions. I want to hear your questions, and it doesn't matter. I mean, we just had a great chat about determinism. I enjoyed it. And yes, I've talked about it till I'm hoarse. Nay, sometimes. And so it's about your questions. Don't feel like you have to hold off or don't feel like, well, maybe this has been covered before or whatever. Just ask your questions. This show is live. This show is for you. This show is for you to get a few words in and then for me to go on endless rants that put you to sleep. No, wait. No, wait. Sorry. Let me read my mission statement. No, that is my mission statement. So actually that fits really nicely. Um, but uh, no, please uh, feel free to call in. There are no dumb questions. There are only uh, dumb questions. No, there are no dumb questions. Uh, and uh, I really, really want to. Uh, if it's important to you, I mean, this sounds cheesy, but it, it genuinely is what I believe. If the question is important to you, it is important to me. And if the question is important to you, it may never have been dealt with in the podcast. It may have been dealt with badly in the podcast or unsatisfactorily to you. And you may have to wait for another year, even if you're plowing through one or two a day before you get to anything that's of use to you. Don't spend that year without your question being at least attempted to be answered by, by me or by others on the message board. So uh, please, please, if you have a question that's nagging at you, you know, drop it into uh, the Skype uh, Borg brain and let's see what we can come up with as, as helpful approaches. So uh, I hope that you won't feel inhibited about, about, uh, about calling in. Uh, there was a – oh, yeah, sorry. Do I have any plans to reach out to the skeptical community? I listen to the Skeptic Guide to the Universe and it's great fun. I think their approach to reality is quite similar to yours. Uh, I, I have no problems reaching out to the skeptic community. My time is largely uh, parenting and whatever it is that I'm producing. I mean, I think the output has been pretty good this year. Uh, two books, I think, uh, and quite a lot of podcasts and some pretty good public speaking uh, and so um, what with the sort of travel for public speaking and conferences and, and putting out the books, we've upgraded the website. And that was mostly the technical team and you know, put out a couple of books. Uh, I don't have time for a lot of outreach at the moment. So, uh, But, you know, don't leave it up to me. If you feel that there's a good venue for me to uh, talk to or talk into, uh, please the, just send them an email. I mean, be proactive. Uh, that would be my suggestion. Uh, send them an email and say that uh, here's a guy who loves to talk. And it might uh, it might fit, and uh, you know, just copy me on it if you want. Host at freedomainradio.com, and uh, I'm very happy to chat to the skeptical community. I think that we have a lot in common, and um, I chat to Christians. I'm happy to talk to socialist atheists. <laughs> I'm happy to talk to anyone who might be open to reason. Uh, somebody wrote, when you write UPB, can you change up the style? I'd really like it written in a more straightforward, clear style. I feel like there was a lot of fluff compared to other works I've read in philosophy, yours included. Yes, well, I'm not going to um, edit it. I'm going to start 
uh, from scratch. So hopefully um, that will be uh, uh, more to your liking and more to your satisfaction. Uh, I certainly accept that as criticism, and I will certainly work to improve the style. Uh, I'm not going to give you any of my cheesy excuses as to why it was written the way it is. I've certainly heard that criticism, and I think it's, uh, I think it's very valid. So I will definitely try to improve it in the next round. Oh yeah, so uh, there was, I can't remember who wrote it, but somebody wrote that uh, on, the, on the message board and it went something like this and I'll just sort of try and clear this bit up. Also, if you're listening, if you could uh, mute, I'm um, getting a little bit of feedback, that would be really, really helpful. Uh, somebody wrote um, that if there's an action that is virtuous, then the opposite of that action must be immoral. Like, so if, if, if action A is good, then action opposite A must be, must be evil. I mean, I sort of stand by that. And I think the example that was was given was um, so if um, if not murdering is virtuous, like if 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 uh, if if murder is evil, evil, then the opposite of murder must be virtuous. And I think that's you know I think that's fairly good. Uh, I think that's fairly good. Now, does that mean that you are the summit of virtue every time you don't kill someone, or every day you go by where you don't kill someone? Well. I think there's, um, I think there's uh, some room to argue for that. So, if you look at all of the things that are in UPB that are, I think, rationally justified as as immoral. In other words, the moral theories cannot be logically sustained that advocate them. So, if you look at um, uh, rape and and assault, uh, uh, murder and and theft. So, if we simply were to eliminate the major immoralities from people's individuals and, of course, their political lives, which means there would be no such thing as a political life because there'd be no taxation, no government, and so on. So we'd not have any initiation of force against children. There would be no spanking. There would be no hitting. There would be nothing like that. There would be no governments. There would be no war, of course, because there'd be no initiation of force. There would be respect for property rights, and therefore there would be no theft, and all the overhead associated with theft uh, would, would vanish, right? So security and Insurance and uh, police and night watchmen and sec security guards and video cameras and all that kind of crap would be released to generally productive areas within society. That would be a, a paradise the likes of which we could scarcely imagine at the moment. So I think that is something really, really important. That if you live a life where you're not initiating force, uh, where you're doing all of the stuff that conforms to, to UPB, respecting property rights, not initiating force basically – that's a pretty good life. Now, are you striving for every piece of conceivable virtue and doing even all the aesthetically preferable actions? Well, I think that's icing on the cake, right? So if, you, if, you're, if you're honest and you use RTR and do aesthetically preferable actions like being on time and <laughs> all that kind of stuff and, and uh, you know, treating people as well as you can, uh, certainly the first time you interact with them, then I think that's icing on the cake. And I think that's, that's good stuff. Uh, I think that's for the – but I'm happy to live in a world where people just – deal with respect for property rights and the non-initiation of force. That, like, that transition would already be a miraculously virtuous world compared to what we have, what we have now. Uh, so I think that, that's sort of very, very important. But there is an interesting thing where uh, if we say that murder is virtuous, then everything that is the opposite of murder is evil. And what that is is that casts a very wide net. So if murder is virtuous and everything that's the opposite of murder is evil, then picking your nose is uh, as evil as stubbing your toe, as climbing a set of stairs, as going to the disco. These are all evil because they're not murder. 
And I think that's fair. And I think I sort of made a note to clarify that further in the book for the next round, which is that, of course, that is one of the ways in which we know (laughs) that murder cannot be virtuous. And, And this is why, in general, positive actions... Uh, cannot be, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, positive actions cannot be uh, good because then every time you refrain from them, you're evil, right? So murder is, uh, cannot be uh, virtuous because then you're evil for not doing it. And of course, there's lots of other reasons why murder can't be virtuous, uh, which is that it can't be done by Bob and Doug in the same room at the same time and so on. You can't both be murdering each other because that requires, if, if Bob's going to murder Doug, then Doug has to not want to be killed. Otherwise, it's euthanasia and not murder. And so it's both good and bad at the same time since he has to want it and then not want it simultaneously. He has to want it to the point because he wants to do good, but he has to not want it because... It's he has to not want it in order for it to be murder and so on. So there's all these kinds of things that help us to to understand it, and that's why a positive actions can be evil, uh, i.e., you know, stabbing someone or whatever. Because then, when you're not stabbing someone, you're acting in a good way, acting in a virtuous way. You're respecting people's property and you're respecting people's person. You're not initiating the use of force. That's a good thing to do. So I think that's very very important uh, to to understand that. Uh, it's just another example of why you can't say that some particular positive action is virtuous, some particular specific positive action is virtuous. And I think that's fairly well dealt with in UPB through the coma test, right? So if murder is virtuous, then a sleeping man is by definition evil, and that doesn't make any sense. You can't have a sleeping man be evil. So you can't take a specific positive action and make it the good, right? Because then it fails the coma test, which is another standard or test within UPB. So I hope that helps. Uh, I know that this stuff sometimes seems to clarify less than uh, it it helps, but I think that's that's an approach. All right. Well, thank you. Ah, it always seems to fly by. I hope it flies by for you. It certainly does fly by for me. Uh, but I really wanted to say thank you again to everybody so much for your trust and your support. Uh, and your enthusiasm about philosophy. This is truly an amazing conversation uh, to be part of, and I hope that uh, you find it as useful as I do. And uh, I just really want to encourage everybody to continue this uh, self-knowledge and and virtue and uh, all that kind of stuff. I have some great listener conversations to come out. I just posted one to Google+. I also wanted to remind people, I know this is all business that's coming at the end, but I just wanted to remind people that I am... Uh, we got like, I don't know, over 30,000 YouTube subscribers, which is great. There can be more. Please help by supporting that if you can. But I'm out of Facebook slots. Uh, as an individual, I can only have up to 5,000. And I ran, I blew past it some time back. So uh, if you send me Facebook requests, I can't accept them because of the limitation of that. But if you go to, I don't think I've set this up, but I'll set it up by the time you hear this on the podcast feed. <laughs> But there is a Free Domain Radio Facebook page, which I'm going to start using a lot more of. Uh, so that can be um, uh, any uh, any number of people. Uh, so uh, let me just get that for you. I'm going to post that in the chat room. But uh, please uh, give that a shot because I'm posting podcast previews and other kind of goodies there as well. And so uh, if you go there and you become a fan of that and... Um, then you can get your feeds through that way. But I'm afraid I'm just out of um, uh, out of slots for my personal Facebook account. 
So, <clears throat> all right. Well, that's it for me. I hope you have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful